Well, as Mike mentioned, uh, my name is Ken, one of the pastors here at the church. Very, very thankful to be able to serve here and to be part of this church family. Uh, today, as we continue in this week's installment of the sermon series, Echoes of Advent, this idea of Brother Nishat of the Palestinian Bible Society just shared earlier, we are considering the essential but oh so, so, so elusive topic of peace. And to do so, we will explore the story of Solomon. And so if you have a Bible, turn with me to First Chronicles in the Old Testament, First Chronicles chapter 22, First Chronicles chapter 22, and we'll get there in a second. But first, we need to have the context of the story. And so for that, we're actually going to look at Solomon's father, David. So keep your finger in First Chronicles 22. We'll get there in a moment. And we're going to start it first with David's story a little bit first. In the Old Testament book of Second Samuel, God speaks to the prophet Nathan to David. We read there. Turn this on. There we go. In 2 Samuel, we read, And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. I've done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We see here in these verses that God gives David this amazing promise, this promise that one day someone from his lineage will build a house for the Lord and reign forever on the throne. But David, he properly recognizes this is not just a wonderful promise for him individually, but this is a promise of eternal, cosmic significance. David, he understands that there is something much, much bigger going on here, and it can be seen in actually the name that David uses in response to God. Right after God gives this promise to him, David replies in prayer, and he says, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, and going on, is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. You are, O sovereign Lord, there is no one like you. And going on to verse 28, O sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy, and you, O sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Now, anything repeated in the Bible is significant. So what's the significance here of David immediately responding to God's promise with this name, O Sovereign Lord? It's Adonai Yahweh in the Hebrew. He responds seven times with this. This is not by chance here. Seven times David responds with this name, O Sovereign Lord. It's noteworthy not not only because it is the perfect number, it denotes fullness and perfection, but more importantly, it actually harkens back And it connects to actually what Benji spoke on last week as we started this sermon series. If you didn't get a chance, go back and listen to his message online and what he preached because it was good. We saw last week that when God gave his promise, his gracious promise of hope to Abram, later named Abraham, uh, Abram responded, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And then verse 8 there, O sovereign Lord. How can I know that I will gain possession of it? There's a connection going on here that oftentimes we fly by and not pay attention to. 
The great scholar, my former seminary professor, actually, back in the 90s, Walter Kaiser, he has a book and he says this. In his prayer, David uses the exceptional name of God, Adonai Yahweh. Nowhere else does this compounded form of the name of God appear in Samuel or Chronicles. The special significance of this name is that this is the name God used when he promised Abraham a seed in Genesis 15, 2 and 8. Its repeated use here is indeed part of the same promise plan that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The implications of this being a charter for all humanity are clear. What David received is to be conveyed to everyone, including all the Gentiles and nations of the earth. All humanity can profit from what he has just been told about, his house slash dynasty, kingdom, and throne. This is what's going on in our passage here. And now with this background in place, let's shift to Solomon's story. Turn with me to First Chronicles chapter 22, starting at verse 6. And if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading and honoring of God's word. First Chronicles chapter 22, we'll look at verses 6 through 13. We read, Then he, David, called for his son Solomon, charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon. And I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son. And I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now my son, the Lord be with you. And may you have success and build the house of the Lord your God as he said you would. May the Lord give you discretion and understanding when he puts you in command over Israel. So that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will have success if you are careful to observe the decrees and laws that the Lord gave Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Have a seat, y'all. The name of the books, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, means events of the days in Hebrew. And it's actually a shortened form of an introduction from St. Jerome. St. Jerome who once said that it was a chronicle of the whole divine history. Here in this spot of God's history, David gives a charge to his son Solomon to fulfill his dream. David's dream being, hey, we need to build a temple. We need to build a proper place of worship for God. Like Moses' relationship with Joshua, where Moses is denied the privilege of leading God's people into the promised land. And it is instead accomplished by his successor, Joshua. David is denied the privilege of building the temple. It is completed by his successor and his son, Solomon. Why is that the case? Because David was a man of war, we're told. He was a man who had fought many battles, shed much blood. And this new kingdom was going to be a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of rest, a kingdom of blessing. And this was not for David, but this was for David's son, Solomon, a man of peace. A very well-known pastor to us writes on this point. Verse 9 gives a detail that would have resonated deeply with the original readers of this book. As most Bibles will point out in a margin note, the name Solomon sounds like and is likely derived from shalom, the Hebrew word 
for peace, the great Reverend Benji Brunel. I didn't do that in the last service. As the story continues in First Chronicles and then into Second Chronicles, our man of peace, Solomon, he would fulfill his father's dream in completing the temple. He would establish the glory days of the kingdom of Israel. He would rule in Israel for 40 years, years that were marked by celebration, years that were marked by fame and lavish wealth and blessing and true peace. No war during those 40 years. And God's people must have thought that they had arrived that's, that Solomon was, as the young people say today, that he was him, and that all their, pre- can I say that? I don't know if I can say that, but I said it, okay. And that all their previous struggles of slavery and wandering and strife were all now over, as God had established his kingdom forever. They thought, we're here. We've made it. We're good now. And yet, many of us know, the story doesn't end here. And the golden years of Israel fade away And they fade away into spiritual decline, into things like the destruction of this glorious temple, even exile, even the apparent end of the reign of David's line. And this would leave the people of God asking and wrestling with questions like, is God still with us? Did God fail? What is going on? How could this have happened to us? We had made it to the top and now we're here. What are we supposed to do with the promises that God gave to us that seem to have no chance of being fulfilled now? These are the questions, these are the doubts that they are now wrestling with. I'm sure many of us have asked these questions before. I'm sure all of us here probably know people who might be wrestling with these questions even right now. What do we do with God's promises when everything around us seems antithetical to his peace and to God's goodness? The Chronicle continues, and it goes on like this for centuries. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the New Testament, to Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Luke chapter 2, verse 8, verses 8 through 14, and we read there, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. On that O holy night when the son of David was born, when the shepherds would oh hear the angel voices giving glory to God and wishing peace on earth, we see here this what God's peace looks like. And through Jesus' earthly life and ministry, we see the peace of God being established, being inaugurated here. And it is much more than just a fleeting feeling. So often we think of peace just as a mere feeling. There's something much bigger and deeper going on here. Because we see here in the Gospels, we see one from the line of David healing the sick and infirmed. We see him delivering those afflicted by demons. We see him reaching out and inviting and embracing those ignored, those pushed out to the margins. Because we see Jesus, he invites tax collectors and sinners and drunkards, prostitutes and Gentiles and women into the kingdom of heaven. 
This was the kind of peace that was being, being inaugurated on the night that Christ was born. And this peace was something much bigger, much deeper, much more comprehensive than what we typically think of or imagine. Going back to that previous scholar, when the biblical authors wrote and spoke of shalom, they meant something much more robust than mere cessation of hostility, as wonderful as that is. Shalom speaks of comprehensive flourishing for all creation and all creatures under God's benevolent rule. This is the kind of peace, the shalom of God, that Christ instituted when he came to earth long ago. And it is still being established through the work of the Spirit, moving through us as the church. But we live in the tension, as James mentioned a little while ago, we live in the tension of the already and not yet. I love that song that Mike led us in, because it really captures that message so well of how we see a glimpse and we can catch a glimpse of what is to come, but we are still where we are now. And we live in that tension as we have yet to taste and experience the fullness of God's shalom, of God's shalom and peace on earth as it is in heaven. And we still look forward to that day as pain and war, as strife and brokenness are still common and shared experiences for us all. So for the rest of our time together, I would like for us to consider this topic of peace in three ways. And hopefully this will help us to get through the playoffs of Advent to get to the Super Bowl of Christmas. I am a football fan. First one, peace with God. Peace with God. For those of us who aren't sure where we are in our spiritual journeys, for those of us where we aren't sure where we stand with God, this is for you. This is for you. And the scriptures make it clear that when our spiritual ancestors, Adam and Eve, when they sinned and disobeyed God in the garden way back in Genesis chapter 3, creation fell. Creation became distorted. Sin has been passed on from generation to generation now. And now the Bible tells us in the New Testament that we are not dead in our sin. And there's nothing on our part, no amount of good morality or good behavior, no Bible reading that's good enough, or church attendance that is good enough to save us. There's absolutely nothing we can do to fix our situation and make peace with God on our own power. And I know sometimes when we talk about this, we use big theological terms and big doctrinal things that are really heavy. And so I'm going to try to teach this to us in a way that was taught to me by my pastor many, many, many years ago. And for this, you will need to put down your phones and your Bibles and your water and anything else that you have in your hands because you will need both of your hands here. Okay? This is not part of it. This is the chicken dance. Okay? That's what this is. All right. This is us. This is it. Okay. This is us. Don't repeat it back. Us. This is God. When God created us, Genesis 1 and 2, we had a perfect relationship with him. Face to face. Absolute peace with God. Genesis 3 happens, and we would choose to disobey God. And the peace with God in our relationship would become broken and fractured. And so we would turn our back on God. I feel like stretch before I do this. <laughs> our God being holy, our God being righteous, our disobedience would end up, our relationship with him would end up like this. Now we would think that since we were the ones who had wronged God, that we would have to make it right. But again, as we talked about, there is no amount of Bible reading or church attendance or being a good person. Nothing is good enough to get right with God, to make peace with him. And yet God, but God in his great love for us, he sent his son, Jesus, and he would turn. 
And he would send his son, Jesus, to die upon the cross for sinners such as us so that we may believe in him and receive everlasting life and receive peace with God. That's it. (laughs) That is the message of the gospel. On this, the Apostle Paul, he writes in Romans, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is for those of us who, have not, who may not yet believe, who may not yet be at peace with God. And if this is you, if this is, this is the one thing that you remember from today, the one thing that you glean and take away, I will consider it the greatest of all successes. But now praise God, we will say that was an amazing day. Because it was a day of salvation. A word for those of us now who do believe, but who may be struggling to feel at peace with God right now. It's like when your spouse turns to you and says, I love you, I see you, we're married together, but I am not okay with you right now. (laughs) Never happened to me. Completely hypothetical. (laughs) My wife, Jin Young, is not here today, so she can... She, she can't, like, disprove it. Okay. <laughs> when we look around us and even at our own lives, there might be much evidence of, there might not be much evidence of hope, which we discussed that last week, or peace, which we're discussing today. But we can have faith, and we need to have faith, that there is much more going on under the surface. An author, Parker J. Palmer, encourages us to do in his book, Let Your Life Speak. He tells us, Consider the season of life that you're in. Consider the season of life that you are in right now. He says, seasons is a wise metaphor for the movement of life, I think. It suggests that life is neither a battlefield nor a game of chance, but something infinitely richer, more promising, more real. The notion that our lives are like the eternal cycle of the seasons does not deny the struggle or the joy, the loss or the gain, the darkness or the light but encourages us to embrace it all and to find in all of it opportunities for growth. My wife just texted me on my iPad saying, I'm dead. Okay. (laughs) This spoke so profoundly. Let's get serious. (laughs) This spoke, this spoke so profoundly, so powerfully to me. When I read it years ago, I was going through a very difficult season of ministry, a season of my life. And to use Parker Palmer's analogy, I was very much in a winter season. And many of you, it's ironic because many of you know I came from the East Coast and I absolutely hate the winter. I hate the snow. I hate cold weather. Those of you who live, we live here in Santa Barbara and you choose on vacation to leave sun to go seeking out snow. I will never understand you. That's the one thing, and I will never forgive you either, but that's another point too. When I thought of winter there on the second best coast, the words that came to my mind were cold, harsh, bitter, loss, death. The leaves, they die and they fall. The trees are bare. The days are short. It gets dark so early. And nobody wants to go outside. And going outside in the winter, it hurts. And making the decision to get out of bed and get going with your day, it becomes so much tougher and harder. And Palmer reminds us that though the experience of winter, though it is difficult, 
there are hidden gifts and blessings that come along with it. When the trees are stripped bare, it's easier to see the roots and the bark. When there's not as much stuff around, there aren't as many distractions in life. We can now see things better with more focus. There's less noise in the winter as things are so quiet and still. So even though our experience of winter may be difficult and harsh as we are surrounded by so much loss and death, we do receive many gifts and blessings too. The gift of simplicity. The gift of clarity. The blessing of seeing what is truly most important in life. And at the same time, to use this winter and tree analogy, in winter, our roots grow deeper. Our bark becomes tougher and stronger. And the challenges of winter, they prepare us for greater joy and fruitfulness to come in the next season. And so if you're struggling to find peace with God in your relationship with him, consider if this is exactly where God has intentionally placed you. He has not left you. He has not forgotten you. Believe that maybe God has placed you exactly where you are. And I pray that God will help you to see that he has done so to bless you out of his great love and mercy for you as well. Number one, peace with God. Number two, peace with one another. I recently started teaching some of the guys at the rescue mission in town, and it's been so fun and so life-giving, so rewarding. My first time with them, I told them that most people who have been raised in the church and who know the scriptures, they actually don't know the Ten Commandments, and especially the Ten Commandments in order. And so we actually went through them together. And so we went through them. This is a simplified version. This was a version I taught my son Theo when he was very young. Number one, no other gods. Number two, no idols. Number three, do not use the Lord's name in vain. Number four, keep the Sabbath. Five, honor mommy and daddy. Six, no murder or no killing. Seven, no adultery. Eight, no stealing. Nine, no lying. And ten, what my son used to say, no coveting. And so those are the Ten Commandments in order. And we went through them together that day at the rescue mission with the guys there. And then we opened up Matthew 22, where Jesus talks about What is the greatest commandment? And he says there in Matthew 22, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God. Love others. And then we went back. We looked at these ten commandments. We went through them. And we said the first five, the first half, They really center on loving God. Number five, honor your parents is kind of like a swing state. Some people like to put it at the first or kind of push it to the latter. I prefer to keep it in scholars. Many scholars prefer to keep it in the first five because it's five and five. And I like things being balanced in that way. But also our relationship with our parents so often is supposed to mimic and resemble our relationship with God. But we see here in the first five ways that we are to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength. 6 through 10 10 teaches us how we can love our neighbor as ourself. And we went through this together. And what we see very clearly is that in our relationship with God, our relationship with God can never be taken in isolation. But it is always connected to our relationship with those around us. We can't say, I love God with everything, but I don't really care about anyone else. That does not work in the Christian faith. If we love God... We must love one another, 1 John chapter 4. 
If we have been forgiven by God, we must forgive one another. Matthew 18. And if we have peace with God, then we must be at peace, peace with one another. Let's read this together, Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Everyone. In the Greek, that word everyone, it means everyone. I loved our time in the book of Colossians and in Philemon because those books, they're such rich and real books. And they challenge us to consider, now that we've accepted the gospel, now that we've been rescued from this dominion of darkness, now that we are collectively the church with Christ as our head, how do we now see each other? How do we now relate to one another? How do we now live together as the body of Christ, despite our different cultures, our different social status, despite our religious backgrounds? Going back to the book of Philemon, how does a Christ-following runaway slave now relate to his gospel-believing former master? That's real religion right there. That's real faith. That's real gospel living. How do they do life in the church together? And of course, these same questions and challenges exist today. And we must ask, how do we as the people of God exist together in a day and age when it is so, so easy to divide? When it is so easy to fall into a tribal mentality. How can we be the church when we are so quick to point the finger at everyone else and everyone else's groups and blame them for the state that we find ourselves in today? There's not one simple answer to this, of course. But there are things we do know. And there are things that we must do. Must. We must not operate with hearts of hatred full of fear of the other. We must do all that we can to see the best in others and lean into trust and open communication, especially in an upcoming election year. Mike, he spoke so profoundly this past Monday night. As Mike shared, we must do everything we can to listen well and to build the unity of the church. We must be vigilant to be peace, to be at peace with all people and be peacemakers as Christ called us to be on the Sermon on the Mount. And we must pray with fervency, crying out to God for his peace, his shalom, to fill this world. And so on this point, would you join me in praying this holy prayer from the book of Common Prayer? And may this be our prayer and our heart's cry during this Advent season. Recite this with me and let this be our prayer. Grant, O God, that your holy and life-giving spirit may so move every human heart that barriers which divide us may crumble, suspicions disappear, and hatreds cease, that our divisions being healed, we may live in justice and peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Number one, peace with God. Two, peace with one another. Number three, last one for today, peace on earth. Let me kind of set the stage for this a little bit. I've been here for about two and a half years now. It's flown by. It's been a wonderful time. Um, I try to be a big, tough guy. I really do. But the truth is, I am fearful of many, many things. And uh, irrationally fearful of certain things. Um, I'm irrationally scared of anything coming close to my eyes. 
don't do it, y'all. You will not get a loving response back from me, okay? I'm irrationally scared of that. I'm irrationally scared of not fitting in and not being accepted. And my wife, Jean Young, knows this one really, really well. She tends to make fun of me about it from time to time. I'm irrationally fearful of the deep sea. I can swim. I'm quite good at it. I love the beach. I love the hot weather. I love hanging out by the water. But going out significantly past that, it's not going to happen. <laughs> like Boats are fine. I love a boat. Uh, but swimming really far out, surfing, uh, paddle boarding really far out, all those things, it's not going to happen. Because that's where the sharks live. And that's where the whales live. And like the Loch Ness Monster like, lives there. So like, I don't do that. And so I just stay where I'm comfortable and safe. And when people ask about this or they tease me about this, I always respond with the annoying pastoral response. Well, I'm just being biblical. Reason why, let me explain. For people living in Bible times, they were also terrified of the water. The sea in the Greek, the thalassa, the the sea wasn't a place of recreation to go swimming or to hang out at the beach. It wasn't a place to go on vacation. No, the sea, especially the Red Sea, it was considered a place of cosmic evil and judgment. That was the sea. It was the home of evil sea monsters like Leviathan. It was the place where Jonah got swallowed up. It was the place of storms, of winds and waves. And Jesus' disciples were terrified when they were caught in a storm on a boat. And in the Old Testament prophetic books like Daniel and Ezekiel, and also in the New Testament book of Revelation, the sea was the place where terrible beasts would arise and come from, and they would come out and they would bring death and destruction. See, bad and scary stuff happens at the sea. Biblical. Now, the book of Revelation, let's get there and touch upon that a little bit. The book of Revelation, it is a confusing book. It's filled with symbolism, numbers, and images, and figurative language. My old professor used to say all the time, I look at the book of Revelation figuratively because I believe I take it literally. What does that mean? Talk to me later. And the book of Revelation, it shoots back and forth between what's going on in heaven and what's going on in earth, and it retells it over and over again in different ways. And it's this wild and chaotic scene on earth. And there are letters and seals, not the animal, not the singer. Seals and trumpets and horsemen and bulls and a dragon and beast that come from the sea. And so that's what's going on throughout the book of Revelation. But then in in Revelation chapter 15, we read this. And it says, and I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea. Those who have been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. The song being, great and marvelous are are your deeds, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways. King of the ages, who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. We're told here something amazing. That the sea, this scary sea of strong winds and waves, the sea that scares me half to death, it has now become a sea of glass. It is now a sea of stillness. It is now a sea of perfect peace, complete peace, absolute peace. The place of cosmic evil has now become a place of victory and praise for the people of God. 
And those of us who believe in and remain faithful to Christ, we will and can join in this same song of victory and live in the same unshakable peace. But the chronicle continues. And the book of Revelation goes on. We see there at the very end, we're told this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Praise God. Hallelujah. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. In this amazing image here, at the end of God's chronicle, in the midst of a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, we're given the amazing nugget that there is no longer any sea. What does this mean? No more chaos. No more evil. No more fear. No more crying. As every tear will be wiped away. No more pain. No more mourning. No more death. In this new order of things, when everything wrong has been made right, we are given the promise of absolute peace. The shalom of God. Close your eyes for a moment. Can you picture it? Can you see it? Does your body long for this with every fiber of your being? The absolute perfect shalom of God. It is coming. It is coming. This was the peace that God had in mind that he had promised to David and Solomon long ago. This kind of peace that was inaugurated with Christ's first coming and that will be culminated in Christ's second coming. And for us as Christ's faithful followers, this is our destiny. To be with God face to face forever in the peace of heaven. And may this strengthen us and may this give us hope and encouragement. All that we need so that we can continue on so that we will serve God faithfully and do the, all that we can to see God's peace, his shalom, established here in Santa Barbara, throughout this nation, and throughout this world as well. Let's pray together, y'all. Take a moment and just allow God to search and examine your heart. See if there's any offensive way in you. Pray that he will lead you in the way everlasting. And consider these three things. Do you have peace with God? Are you at peace with those around you that God has placed in your life? And are you a believer in the peace that will come on this earth as well? Let's take one minute to pray in silence.
I can think of no better way and more appropriate way for us to respond to God than in celebrating the Lord's table and in prayer. Because on the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus, he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he offered it and said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he would take the cup, give thanks, and he offered it, saying, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. If you have received Christ through faith in the gospel, if you have, and I'll write a peace with God, then come, partake of this table of grace. This is for you. If you have yet to be at peace with God, if you're struggling to be at peace with God, if you're struggling in your relationships and to be at peace with those around you, or if you are struggling to believe in God's ultimate peace on earth, we will have prayer teams on the sides and in the back, people who would love to pray with you. And so let's continue in our worship of the one who has overcome the world, our God of peace and shalom. Let's continue our worship. <laughs>